right, to chapter, to chapter 13. Do we know how old Lot was? Um, he have been a child or was he an adult? He's an adult. And that would make a difference. By now he's an adult. By now he's an adult. Uh, we don't know what, how old he is when they leave, I don't think, but by now he's an adult. I mean, if he was a child when they left, then of course he left. I was thinking maybe he should have left him with his other uncle, not far. That's true, he had another uncle. Okay. And that was more secure at home, you know. God only told Abraham to leave his father's house. Not far was, you know, he stayed home in Hara. Uh, maybe, or maybe he just felt responsible to it his fault. Okay, I don't know. Okay. Um, so chapter 13, right? So now Abraham and Lot have gone through a little adventure in Egypt, which we don't, which we don't uh, find to explore tonight. And they come back, and everybody's really, really rich. And they're so rich, they get into a big fight over whose land it is. And so Abraham tells Lot, you know what? We're brothers. We shouldn't fight. Let's split up the land, right? You take one side, I'll take the other. Okay, so Lot takes a look, and Lot, Lot thinks short-term. Okay, and the Torah is very clear, right? Right, the Torah says he looks and he sees the whole plain of stone, which at that point is the most fertile land, and then just in case you don't get it, the Torah says, right, this is before God overturns these places and makes them the most desolate things in the land, right? So Lot has completely short-term vision. Right, all he sees is the present, he doesn't see, he doesn't see anything, he doesn't see anything about what's going to happen. So Lot, and Lot chooses the side of stone, Right, and in case we don't get to that further, the Torah says and the people of Stone are very, very wicked. Okay, so that's Lot's choice. Um, that's Lot's choice. So what do you think? Should Abraham have let Lot do that? Well, I don't know if he knows it's going to be destroyed, but he knows they're evil. Right, he knows they're evil. So the question is, on the one hand, Abraham's making, giving Lot, right, it sounds like Abraham's doing a great thing, right? He's telling Lot, you get to choose. On the other hand, basically he's giving Lot the choice between, right, um, between two things which aren't equal, one of which will be destructive to Lot, certainly destructive to Lot's character. Right, so the question is, right, the question is right, if Lot now degenerates into a member of the city of Stone, if Lot now becomes, right, legit, becomes part of the evil culture of the city of Stone, is that Abraham's responsibility or not? No. You think, of course, not. I have a free choice. Everyone has free choice. You don't have responsibility for other people. His nephew, but his nephew is an adult now, right? He should, right? He should, he should have given him a free choice. Because so Abraham could have said. The righteous person wants right to be done, and he didn't allow his nephew to become one of the corrupt. Well, he shouldn't, but he did, right? So maybe this was a mistake, right? Maybe he's still being, he's still being pressured. So on the one hand. Now Abraham's being torn by lots of conflicting pressures. It's my nephew. I really feel responsible because of his father. On the other hand, God told me to leave him behind. Right? So I don't know what to do. So I'll let him decide. Where to go? Yes, David. Maybe, although we see, well, we see when actually an episode happens in stone, that Lot seems to be considerably better than his surroundings, right? So I don't know. Now it could be Lot's the kind of person who's brought, you know, if you put him in a good crowd, he would have been the rebel against them. If you put him in stone, they rebelled against them. So I think that, that, that I don't know if that I don't see any hint of that in the story. Yes, Mitch. That's interesting. One option that's not given is that they try to work it out and stay together. That's true. 
So at some point they're going to separate and the algorithm is no longer going to no longer going to be really responsible for that. Maybe, or maybe Avram just finally gets rid of his nephew, which he's been trying to find a way to do all along because God told him to. Right? So maybe this is the way out. Right? Maybe this is, you know, finally he sees an excuse to get rid of it. I don't know. Right? He's being torn. Uh, all the way, uh, all the way, all the way through. Okay. So now, right, so now Lot leaves, and then, right, Lot chooses badly in the very, very short term also, because not only is Stone going to get destroyed physically, but before it's destroyed, he gets destroyed politically because they lose a war. Okay, so now everyone could have said, look, um, you know, Lot made his bed. That's it. I protected him. He made a decision. He's an adult. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight a war for Stone. Stone's evil people, right? Why would I fight a war to save Stone? But Aaron doesn't do that. Right? He starts a war, and he wins the war. Okay? Right? Because why does he fight the war? He fights the war completely to save his nephew. Okay? Now, nowadays, we tend to think that's a bad motive for war. Right, uh, right. You captured my, you captured my nephew, who eminently deserves capturing. Right, but family is family, so I'm going to kill as many of you as I can uh, in the process, right, to get my nephew back. But that doesn't really meet modern standards of just war. But maybe, maybe, we, right, maybe we shouldn't go with modern standards of just war. Maybe we should just think family is family, and if that means you have to kill lots of people, so so be it. Uh, right, Hatfields and McCoys. Um, okay, so we have is what we say I would say is at least a morally ambiguous war. Right, everyone fights a war to say, uh, right, and the result, uh, the result of the war is that the, that the, um, that the city of stone, right, can now, the, the kings can come out of hiding. Okay, now we have a dialogue between, um, between Abraham and the king of stone. So the king of stone walks up to Abraham and says, give me the people and you take the money. Okay, and Abraham gives an impassioned speech with something of an anticlimax. He says, no, I won't take even shoelaces from you. Everything except the provisions of the, of the people who went with me, right? They get, right? They, right? They get to take whatever they want. But I won't take a thing because you're not going to say, right? You're not going to say I made Abraham rich. Okay, it's a wonderful speech. I remember when I was nine years old, I gave a speech about this. I was very, I was very into it, comparing it to a, a hero in a Swiss folk tale, uh, who wasn't quite that honest, who was happy to take shoelaces. Uh, anyway, my first big public speech, was very fun. Um, anyway, so the. Um, so the king of stone makes a speech, um, tells Avram this, and Avram, and Avram says, nope, nope, I won't take anything from it. Okay, so here I ask you a question, right? Is that what you want Avram to say? Right, it sounds like a good speech, right? But is that what you want Abraham to say? Nope, right, I won't even take shoelaces. Right, you guys, is that what you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah okay, go Abraham. Right? Okay, right. So Abraham's being idealistic, right? I'm not, right? I don't want anybody to claim to self-interest in here, and I don't want to owe anything to you, evil people. Good. So what happens? What happens to these people because of Abraham's nobility? They all die, right? Right? Because they all get to, right? Because what happens is the evil culture of stone gets reconstituted, right? And then God comes along and wipes the whole place out. Ah, no, no, no. So let's write. So let's play, right? It says. If the king of stone says to Abraham, give me the people and you take the money. Maybe the, the right answer would have been, no, you take the money and give me the people. Right? We're all working on the assumption that, you know, the, you know, because the king of stone says, you know, give me the, give me the people, um, you take the money. Abraham says, no, I'm not going to take your money. Well, what about the people? 
Okay, right? This is not my idea. The Talmud in Tractate Nidurim, right, page 32a, says that the whole, the whole reason the Jews suffered exile in Egypt was because Abraham lost the opportunity to bring the people of Sodom under, uh, under God's protection. Okay. And not only, right, not only does Abraham fail to save the people of Sodom because of his idealism, right, but, but who else saved himself? His nephew. Right, once again, and once again, right, once again, he leaves his nephew who goes back to living his life. Okay, and, they, and whether Abraham feels responsible for everybody else or not, now it seems pretty clear that Abraham feels responsible for his nephew, willing to go to work for him. But not enough to take him out of there. Right, he still gets to make his decision. Okay, so now we have, right, we've had, Abraham had a choice between his idealism, so to speak, or his, or his obedience to God and his sense of loyalty twice. Right, once he takes Lord with him, even though God told him not to. And the second time he abandons Lot because he thinks that's what, right, that's what he's supposed to do, right, because he doesn't want, he doesn't want to change his idealism, to change his idealism. Okay, so, um, okay, so now we get into the um, third question. Right? Why does God tell Abraham about the, about the impending judgment of stone? Right, very peculiar line, right, and God, uh, right, we are in. Um, Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a, a verse where God where God right where God where God says, "Am I hiding?" 1820. Sorry. Okay. Right. 1820. Right. So, um, so Abraham. Right. So God says to Abraham. God says to himself, "Am I hiding, Abraham, what I'm going to do?" And then he gives then he gives a long speech about. Why, why he should tell Abraham the relevance of which is certainly not immediately apparent, uh, in which, unfortunately, we really don't have time to figure out why it was relevant tonight. Something to go home and think about is, right, what is what God, God says, am I telling it to Abraham, who's going to be a great nation? So what? Uh, okay, that, that's a question we can't do. Why does God tell him? Why does God tell, uh, tell Abraham? He wants to be talked out of it. He wants to be talked out of it. Well, I don't know. We'll see, because in the end... If God wants to be talked out of it, presumably he would let Abraham talk him out of it. But it doesn't work. Uh-huh. Well, no. I mean, so let's Okay, we'll talk about that. Good. Okay, I want to I want to quote here two um, two fascinating um, two fascinating Midrashic stories. One is in um, after the whole story of the war. This is chapter fifteen, verse one. God appears to Abraham in a vision, and he says, "Don't worry, Abraham. I will protect you." From what? He just won a war. Right? Why should Abraham be afraid of anything? So, there, one version is that, look, it was, a, it was a fluke. You know, we had a couple hundred people, and he defeated five, you know, he defeated five kings because he was a surprise attack at night. You know, the soldiers ran away, right? Tomorrow he's going to come and attack him. So God says, don't worry. I'll protect you against the counterattack. But there's a much, um, a much more, more striking, a much more striking um, inter- uh, interpretation which is, you can find in, um, this is verse number four on the sheet. Uh, and I, what I give you is not a precise translation. It's the translation Elie Mizel gives you, which is a little bit more dramatic than the actual, and save, and save me the trouble of writing my own translation. But, anyway, but uh, it's not exact. So, uh, Abraham was beset by doubt. How was he to know whether among the warriors he had slain there had not been just, one, one just man who did not deserve such a death? So, so, God, so God had to dispel his fears and said, all you've done is pull the thorns out from the king's gardens, the king will reward you. 
Okay, so Abraham's war, you just put a war. What happens in a war is you don't evaluate the righteousness of the people on the other side. Right? In a war, right, you just try, you try and kill your opponent. Okay, and Abraham comes out of the war wondering, particularly since we've seen it wasn't necessarily the best war to begin with, just the most just war to begin with, he comes out wondering, these people I killed on the other side, maybe they were really good people. Okay, right? What have I done? So God tells him, don't worry, you've got it, you've got, you've got it right. Okay, essentially God tells him, kill them all, God will know his own. Uh, right? And in this case, you're lucky, right? God, you know, you didn't get anybody like that. But that tells you, that tells you, right? So this is an issue which is already in Abraham's mind. Right? What happened, right? The, the fear of killing randomly. Right? And, and it's something which is in his mind because it's something that he's afraid that he's already done. Right? But he's right, because he's fought a war. Right? He's fought a war for the sake, he's fought a war for the sake of load. And the result of it is that he's afraid, maybe I killed somebody who didn't deserve killing because when you get into a war scenario, you can't judge that closely. Okay. That's one thing to, think, to, to keep in mind. Um, second, um, second Midrashic story. Um, this is, um, this is verse, uh, and this is a source number 11. Okay, Rabbi Levi says, Rabbi Levi, why did God reveal himself to Avram? Because Avram was wondering about the flood generation, thinking it was impossible for there not to be among, have been among them 20 or at least 10 righteous people. Okay, so here again, you have Sennacher says, and the reason God didn't tell Abraham is because Abraham was already wondering, is God just or is God not just? Right, does God kill the righteous together with the wicked? Or does God not kill the righteous together with the wicked? Look, God wiped the whole world out once. Right? Is it really possible that there weren't some that there weren't some righteous people among them? Okay, so God had to, right? So God had to um, had to come and tell Abraham in advance because if He just wiped out stone without telling Abraham in advance, there's no question that Abraham would have said, "This God of mine is not a just. He's right. He's not just." Okay, I want to ask you is a, a second stage question. Where does the Medrash get this idea from? How does the Medrash get the idea? How does the Medrash get the idea that Abraham was already wondering about this question? So one possibility is the Medrash is just wondering the same thing we're wondering. Why does God tell? Why does God have to talk to Abraham? What's the problem? So the Medrash theorizes, well, it must be Abraham was wondering about. But I want you to hold that question in your mind because I think there's a much stronger. Answer. Okay. Um, before, before we get around to answering that question, right, hold that question in your mind. Right? What, um, the, what, right, what, why does the Midrash believe right, twice now that before the, Abraham actually argues with God, he's already wondering about this question. Right? Is God always just? So I wanted to show you something, uh, show you in the verse. If we take a look at chapter 18. Um, chapter, eight, chapter 18, verse 1. So chapter 18, verse 1 says, And God appeared to Ab God appeared to him among the terebinth, or the oaks of Mamre, depending whether you like terebinth or not. Uh, and Abraham is sitting at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. Okay, so that's verse 1. What happens? God appears to Abraham. Verse 2, And he lifts up his eyes and he sees, and behold, there are three people. Okay, what's the obvious problem? And God appeared to him, and he lifts up his eyes and he sees three people. What happened to God? Yeah. Right, what happened to God? Okay? So, you have two answers. 
two, two basic answers which divide into a whole series of things. You have one answer which is that God appeared to him in a vision, and the vision was of three people, or right, really angels appeared to him as a vision of three angels. Okay, and that's fine, right? And then the verses read perfectly clearly. You just have to be willing to assume that when it says God appears to him, it's okay if it's just a vision, not God himself. Second possibility, which, um, which Rashi um, develops, is that God told Ab- that Abraham told God to wait, because welcoming guests is more important than speaking to God. So first God appears to him, and then Abraham says, whoops, guest, wait, 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 wait. Right, and Abraham runs to greet the guest. Okay. Why, um, why, does it, why does this matter so much? Right? And it's also cool because in, the, uh, in verse 3, there's a word which, right, Abraham's first word to the three people are, which can mean God or my master. We don't know which one he's talking to. Right? Is he talking to God or is he talking, right, God, please don't leave, or yes, please don't leave. So the ambiguity works all the way through. Okay, there's a long, right, there's a long, uh, there's, a lo- there's a long dialogue at the end of which, um, right, they, they tell Abraham he's going to have a, that he's, and Sarah they're going to have a son, right, and then the three people, the three people leave, and they go to Saddam. You pick it up at verse 16, it says that the people get up from with Abraham, and they look out over the face of Sodom, and Abraham's going with them to send them off. Okay, so, right, verse 16. Okay, 16, right, chapter 18, verse 16. Okay, so we start off, right, let's say, okay, let's say that this microphone is the entrance of the tent. Okay, we're over here, I'm over here, um, right, God presumably is over here, right, because God's appearing to me, and the three angels are over here. Okay, now the three angels leave. Okay, so I walk with the three angels, God presumably is still here, right? Right, and, and we're telling God, wait, and I'll come back as soon as I'm with the guest. Right, I get over here, and now, all of a sudden, right, we get to verse 22, and the people turn and they go to stone, and Abraham was still standing before God. Okay, so God is everywhere. Good. Uh, God is uh, right. God, God is everywhere. So God was waiting for him there. God was waiting for him here. Um, except, if two possibilities. You could say that Abraham is still standing before God because he's still there with the angels until he sends them all. The other possibility, right, is Abraham wouldn't really be standing before God, because Abraham left God a long time ago. Right? What's the other po- what really happens is that God is still waiting there for Abraham. Right? It's really right, it's not that Abraham was walking with God and he's still right, he's still standing before God. It's that God was walking with Abraham, and as soon as Abraham was gone, God's still standing there. And Rashi goes that far. Rashi says that this is a literary conceit, right? That sometimes in order for the honor of God, as opposed to writing it, that Abraham was, you know, that that, um, that God was standing in front of Abraham, that looks undignified. So we write it, right, God, that Abraham was standing before God, but if you read the story, it's clear that God was actually standing before Abraham. Okay, so two versions of the story. In one version of, in one version of the story, um, Abraham, right, the, guest, the angels want to leave, and Abraham says, no, no, I'm still here, you can't leave yet. And the other version, God's been waiting patiently for Abraham all along. The importance, the importance of that difference is, who needs to have this conversation about God? Okay? Is it that, right, is it that, right, Abraham really needs to have this conversation once God's told him because he can't deal with it? Or is it somehow that God actually can't destroy stone without having the conversation with Abraham first? Okay? So there's a Midrash, which goes so far as to say that God has just anointed Abraham, owner of the land of Canaan, fathers of all the nations, 
And the Jurassic says, look, if you give somebody a present, even if it's still yours somewhat, well, you can't destroy it without talking to the person. Okay, and that's what Rashi said. Okay, so Medrash says, right, that, right, that God was waiting for Abraham because God couldn't destroy stone without talking to Abraham first. And I want to make a sharper point, which may be valuable at the end of it. Maybe God can't destroy stone not only without talking to Abraham first, maybe God can't destroy stone without Abraham's permission. Okay? Okay. Uh, let's leave that. The other possibility, the other possibility is that God needs to talk to Abraham. Abraham wants to talk for God, wants to talk to God because Abraham is bothered by these theological problems, right? Is God really just? Okay, we see Midrashim plugging this into Abraham all along, right? Abraham's worried about the war. Maybe I killed somebody unjustly. Abraham's worried about the generation of the flood. Maybe God killed people unjustly. Where did the Midrash get this? Okay. So, let's take a look at the actual dialogue. Okay? Um, so, chapter um, 18, verse 23. Uh, you get, uh, Abraham, Abraham approaches God and he says, Will you destroy the righteous together with the wicked? Okay? Um, right, maybe there are 50 righteous people in the city. Are you going to destroy and not spare the place? Right? For the sake of the 50 people in it. Right? Heaven forbid that you should do something like this just to kill the righteous together with the wicked, and then the righteous will be like the wicked. Heaven forfend, will the judge of all the land not, say, not be just? And God says, you know what? If there are 50, people in the, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, I'll spare the whole city. Okay. So, Aaron accuses God, or Aaron accuses God for wanting to destroy the righteous together with the wicked. And the result of it is God says, you know what? Yeah, if there are 50 people in the city, I'll spare the whole city. So, that's a big jump, right? Abram accuses God of not wanting to destroy the righteous, the righteous together with the wicked. And God says, you know what, if there's 50 righteous people, I'll save the wicked people too. Right? That's an impressive negotiation, right? If Barak gets that far, uh, right? Today, we'll, be really, right, we'll be really happy if you can just get him down, uh, get him down, get him down like that in no, um, in no time at all. Um, Let's take it. Um, let's take a question a little bit further. Okay, I remember that uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb, the president of Yeshiva, has a wonderfully written essay, uh, and a, a wonderful essay called Faith and Doubt, where he talks about people who are bothered by the universe, by right, the randomness of the universe. And he says, you know, we continually ask within, you know, when we look around all of us and we say, um, we say with, with Abraham, shall the judge of all the land not do justice? It's a great rhetorical flourish. And it's really a good question to ask. But if you look around you, right, you look and you see, in, in, uh, right, you see massacres all over, all over the world, and you see people being cruel to each other, and whatever social problems you feel like. Right, it's a really good question. You can look at the world and you can say, right, will the judge of all the land not do justice? Pretty much at any moment in history, you can, with, with justice, ask the question, will the judge of, the land, of all the land not do justice? There's only one moment in history, really, where it was not a fair question. The one moment in history where it's not a fair question is the one moment that it's asked. Right? Because here, right, what happens? Right? God says, you know what? The outcry of stone is very great. Let me go down and see whether, in fact, the outcry is as great as it's supposed to, right, as it seems to be. And if it is, then I will destroy them. And if not, not. Okay? And all, and all God tells Abraham is, right, I'm going to go down and see. Right? And see whether, right, whether, in fact, this city deserves to be destroyed or not. Okay, that's why I titled the in the lecture series, right, I titled this 
Our aid of arguing with God is about when bad things happen to bad people. Right? Because the rest of the time we have to worry about it. But this is the one time when we're absolutely sure there are no good people. And there's no sense of injustice at all. Right? This is justice, absolute justice. So why does Abraham ask the question now? Of all time. Right? The week before, probably Abraham had, you know, had his best had his, his best his best friend uh, his best friend's child die young because of some horrible disease. And that was fine. But all of a sudden, when God said, let me destroy these wicked people, all of a sudden, shall the judge of all the land not do justice? Right? It's such a ridiculous accusation that God doesn't even respond. Right? God just goes immediately, no, no, I'll, you know, I'll save the wicked together with the righteous. Right? God never responds to that accusation. Okay. So that's why the measure says, well, he couldn't have been asking it because of this. Right? Because it's ridiculous here. The only reason that Abraham could possibly ask the question now is because he's been looking for a chance to ask this question because it's been bothering him for a long time. Okay? So the Medrash has to continually find places where Abraham was bothered by this question before because now it's certainly not a place for it to bother him. Okay. That's one. So the Medrash is giving you one way out of it. Right? Maybe the reason Abraham asked such a bad question now or asked such a good question at such a bad time is because... Uh, it's because he was bothered by the question generally, and this just seemed like a good chance. Um, you want to see? You want to see how far, like how far, you know, how much, how, how obvious this question is? But there's another wonderful measure. Um, this is source number ten, in which, um, which again, I'm giving you an Elie Wiesel's translation. So he begins with, with tremendous amounts of rhetoric about how terrible Sodom is, right? City of sin, exuding crime. Great word, exuding. Spreading evil, right? Punished for his deeds, not against God, but against mankind. Against the weak, the destitute, the homeless, the wretched. <coughs> right. Rabbi Huda said in stone there existed a law decreeing capital punishment for offering bread to a stranger, a beggar, a pauper. And yet when God learned, and when Abraham learned that God was preparing to destroy stone, he came to his defense. He pleaded for divine mercy, saying, saying to God, if you want this world to survive, there can be no justice. If you want justice, there can be no world. You have to choose between justice and the world. It's an amazing moment. What is the text? The text has Abraham accused, telling God, shall the judge of all the land not do justice? The Medrash has, has Abraham telling God, you can't do justice. And the reason the Medrash does this is because it doesn't make any sense. Right? Right? He is doing justice. But that, it doesn't make any sense, you know, the Medrash can do it, but I'm not willing to accept it at the end. There's got to be, there's, right, there's got to be a way to read it within the text. And I don't see any way you can read the text as saying that Abraham is demanding Right, Abraham is, is demanding um, mercy as opposed to justice explicitly. Okay. So, right. So, in, in terms of um, in, in terms of, of um, question number four, right. So we have a problem. Right. What is what is it? What does God want? Abraham want God to do? Abraham clearly wants God to save the wicked together with the righteous. What does he think God is planning to do? Well, it seems like he thinks God is planning to destroy the righteous together, the righteous together with the wicked. But he makes that accusation at the beginning. God never answers it. And he never goes back to it. So, what does he really think? Okay, two more points, and then I'm going to try and offer an overarching theory, which we can um, agree with and not agree. Um, at the very, if you go, if you go back to the text. Okay, so now we are. In um, chapter 18, verse 23. Sorry, verse 33. Chapter 18, verse 33. 
Okay, this is after negotiations are complete. Right, you all know we start off, Abraham asks for 50. And God says, 50, that's fine. So Abraham says, how about 45? Right, and he pulls the you know, classic, classic bargaining trick, right? Well, if 50 is okay, you know, then 45 for 5, you're not going to write. Uh, we're not right. This is the way in which you totally get somebody to give you a million dollars, right? Well, you wouldn't give me five. Why not six? It's only one dollar. Well, you're willing to give me six now. Why not seven? You know, you can go on infinitely. Right? It's also a famous problem now of uh, transfinite numbers somehow. I never, never quite remember exactly how it works. Um, okay, so you have this whole negotiating thing, and eventually Abraham says, "What about ten? And God says, ten's okay." And then we have verse thirty-three, right? And God leaves. Vayelach Hashem. God leaves. When he completed speaking to Abraham. Okay, by the way, there's a, there's a pun, because when he first walked, talked about stone, he said, let's see if they've done kala, right? if they would have done merit destruction, and the last thing he says is kila. Right? So it tells you, right, when he, right, when he finishes speaking with stone, stone, with Abraham, stone is finished too. Uh, right? So God, right, so, uh, right, so God leaves when he finishes speaking with Abraham, and Abraham goes back to his place. Okay, God leaves when he finishes speaking to Abraham. What's the ambiguity? Right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, then that, there's, there's, a, there's suspense about who won. But the ambiguity is, yes, there? Abraham go back to his place and Okay, I would, that, that's the right axis, I think, one step removed. And, right, God. The question I would ask you then, and God left when he finished speaking, speaking to Abraham, was Abraham finished speaking to God? Okay, did God leave, right? Did God, did God, did God leave because the conversation was over? Or, because, or did God leave because, as far as he was concerned, the conversation was over? Or another way of phrasing that is, is Abraham satisfied having gotten down to ten people? Okay, or as far as Abraham was concerned, well, ten people... What about nine? For one person, you're going to destroy right, five cities? Well, what about eight? What about seven? What about six? What about five? What about four? What about three? What about two? And then we turn to, but then we turn to chapter 19. Okay? Chapter 19. Chapter 19, um, verse, verse, um, verse 27. And Abraham got up in the morning. Abraham got up in the morning to the place where, he's, uh, right where he had we had stood before the face of God. And by the way, a puzzle which I'll leave you with at the end is Abraham got up in the morning. You stay up all night, right? For the night before, you have an argument with God. You know, several thousand people of faith depend on it. You don't know who won the argument. I'll go to sleep. I'll see what happens in the morning. Right? So Abraham wakes up in the morning and whoops! The whole city is, right? The whole, right, the whole city of stones destroyed. Bummer. And I slept through that. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, okay, in verse 29, right, it says, when God is destroying the cities of the valley, and God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out. Okay. Lot. That's right, Lot's in stone. Funny that Abraham never mentioned that. Well, is he or isn't he? Well, his last, well here's, the, right, here's the question. Okay, at the very end of the story, right, at the very end of the story, all of a sudden we discover Right, that Abraham, that Abraham's argument fails completely. Right, and in fact, it's, for, it's preordained to fail because God knows already how many righteous people are in the city. The investigation is already over. Right, uh, right, and God, and for all we know, God leaves when Abraham gets down to ten because He knows, you know, five maybe there are. So ten, 
right, tends it. Um, and then God remembers Abraham and saves Lot, not because Lot deserves it, but because God owes Abraham a favor. It's kind of tremendously anticlimactic. You know, Abraham gives a tremendously idealistic, selfless speech, so far as we can tell. Right? Utterly, self, utterly, utterly selfless speech. Right? You know, right? you know, here I am, I am, I am but dust, I am but dust and ashes. You know, who am I to speak to God? Right? All that kind of stuff, and all that you know goes in one divine ear and out the other. Right? But then he kind of remembers Lot. Tell you. Okay. Now, on the other hand. Right, on the other hand, right, that, that's what God does for Abraham. But, see what, in verse, in verse, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse, um, verse 17, so God, so the angels tell Lot, and they say, run away, run away, because you'll get destroyed for the cities. And Lot says, please, 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 no, no. Uh, and his language is exactly the same as Abraham when he first talked to the angels. Right, and he says, uh, right, behold, your servant has found favor in your eyes, you've done tremendous great deeds with me to keep me alive. And I can't run away, right, to, to, to the mountains because, I don't know, because some evil will catch up with me. I'm not really in shape to jog. I don't know what it is. I can't run away that far. So, look, there's this really cool, there's this really nice little city over there which I can run away to. I know you're planning to destroy it, but it would be really tremendously inconvenient for me to have to run away to the mountains. So I'm asking you, for my sake, can you just please save that city? <coughs> and God says, sure. That's fine. Okay. So Abraham gives this tremendously Abraham gives this tremendously idealistic speech. It accomplishes nothing. But God saves Lot. Lot gives a speech which is very frank in its self-interest. Well, you know, it's a little too far for me to run. And um, you know what you know, a couple of thousand people more or less in your particular game of destruction shouldn't make very much difference. Um, right? They're all statistics anyway. Perhaps you could kill a few thousand people on the other side of the world to make up for it. Um, there is a famous message about the angel of death having your quarter. Um, it also appears empty in all the, uh, Pardon? Um, so, what I want to know is, why does, why does Lot get this, and why does Lot get this tremendous reaction if Abraham gets nowhere? So I want to offer um, the thesis which I think um, myself is too sharp. But just to provoke thoughts, when you read it again, you won't read the story, you won't hear the same thing. Maybe Abraham really is arguing for Lot. And that's what he really wants, right? He wants to save Lot because he always feels responsible for Lot. He fights wars for Lot. Right? If he's willing, right? He fights wars in which he kills random people for Lot. So if he's willing to kill random people for Lot, presumably he should be willing to save random people for Lot. Right? It's not that much, right? It's not that much of a leap. But Abraham thinks the rules of the games are that you're not allowed to ask God out of self-interest. And you certainly can't argue with God out of self-interest. So Abraham is compelled to phrase his to phrase his argument in abstract terms, even when those abstract terms don't make sense. Right? Abraham has to, right? Abraham has to accuse God of injustice and claim I'm not trying to hold you to a standard. When the truth is, right, that's the, right, that's the last thing he wants. And as soon as God, right, as soon as God, you know, you know, basically ignores that, so he goes to step two, right? After that, there's no mention of justice anymore. Right, it's just straight out, you know, can't you save the whole city for 50 people? Can't you save the whole city for 45 people? Just bargaining. Okay, but, right, but Abraham can't, right, feel, Abraham feels that it would be illegitimate. Feels it would be illegitimate to say, look, I know these people deserve death, but I think, but I like my nephew. So he makes the argument, 
Right? Um, so he makes the argument where he can't, where he tries to find some kind of argument which would work. And it doesn't. Lod, on the other hand, is perfectly frank. Okay, right? And therefore, Lod is more honest. Um, and God responds to Lod's request, but not to Abraham. But you know, Abraham, Abraham's plea went for the exact same people. Right? So the suggest, right, suggestion that one would... Um, and what's derived from here is that, um, right, is that in arguing for, in arguing with God, um, the first issue you have, right, the first issue you have to um, you have to deal with is making sure that your motives are completely straightforward. Um, maybe if Abraham had been had been straight out, he would have saved everybody. Uh, and in that light, right, um, in that light, uh, we have to. Um, Address the first question we asked, which is right here again. This I'm going, I confess I'm doing this for effect and shock value, but uh, nonetheless, hopefully it should work. Uh, so um, we start off by asking, maybe God couldn't destroy, uh, maybe God couldn't destroy stone without Abraham's permission. And Abraham trapped himself by demanding justice. If he demanded mercy openly, so then he would have tried to strip, you know, God would have to say, look, I don't want to be merciful. Once he demands justice, then God can turn around. Right? God can turn around and say to Abraham, look, injustice, right? You don't want me to act unjustly. Shall the judgment of the land not do justice? Right? In fact, there's even a really wild Midrash, which says the opening line where, right, where Abraham says, right, uh, to destroy the righteous, well, you destroy together the righteous with the wicked, and God says to him, do you want the wicked to end up exactly the same way as the righteous? Couldn't I destroy the wicked? Right? It was really God's interjection. Right? How can you... How could you, Abraham, want the righteous and the wicked to end the same way? It's not fair to have the wife, the righteous save the wicked. And everybody should, everybody should die exact. Everybody should should be exactly in accordance with their own sin. And Abraham's trapped now because the judge of the land has to do justice. Okay. So um, in conclusion, I wanted to read, to read you two quotes. Um, one of which is from um, one of my favorite authors, Albert Camus. Uh, although it's not actually his quote. Um, at least I don't know. I don't know that it's his quote. It's, for, it's something that in a, a marvelous collection of essays he has called "Resistance, Rebellion, and Death." He quotes from something called the Overman Letters, um, which do not seem to have left a trace um, anywhere else in Western culture that I can find. If anybody knows what the Overman Letters are and could tell me where he got it from, I would be appreciative. As so the quote there, it is follows: "Man is mortal. That may be so, but let us die resisting. And if our lot is complete annihilation." Let us not behave in such a way that it seems justice. Okay? Right, what Camus argues is that death by definition is unjust. Right? God creates a world in which people die. There's nothing you can do about that. Right? And every person eventually faces death. And really in a world which was which was based completely on deeds, some people should live forever. Right? As long as your good deeds that way, as your virtues that way, your vices, then you should live forever. Right, so just as the stark contrast, right? There's a question you can ask all the time, right? Uh, right, and that's a question that Abraham should have been bothered by all the time, right? There are people dying. Why are people dying? Right, just to point out the starkness of the of Abraham's asking the question at exactly the wrong time about exactly the wrong people. And the second thing I want to leave in is a very light poem that I wrote uh, many that I wrote many years ago, but which I hope will stay in memory because it should fix some of the questions you've asked in your mind. Uh, it's called Thoughts of a Losing Defensive Friend. And it goes as follows. Shall the judge of all the land not do justice? It was such a great line I couldn't resist. And he seemed to take it very well. But when I woke the next morning to the smell of sulfur, 
I wondered whether asking God to act justly had been such a good idea after all. Okay, thank you. You've been a great audience. Hope we'll see you all next week. Bring your friends.